Welcome to episode 229 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. David Coletto, CEO of Abacus Data, is a pollster with his finger on the political pulse of Canada. His firm regularly asks Canadians what they think about climate change, the energy transition, and specific policies like the carbon tax. I'm looking forward to chatting with him about the past year's top energy and climate stories. So, David, welcome to Energy Talks. Thanks for having me, Mark. Great to be here. Well, I, I always enjoy talking to you because there are uh, some pollsters who I probably wouldn't want to interview, but you're one of the, the one of the ones that I always enjoy uh, interviewing because you do poll on energy and climate topics. So you've, and I know you've done some very comprehensive polls uh, for some clients that you've made available on your website that I've used in the past. Uh, and so I, uh, I, and I particularly enjoy your, your insights into what's going on in Alberta because you're an Alberta boy. Well, I'm not, no, uh, let me correct the record. I, I lived in Alberta for four years. I was born in, in and around Toronto, but I married an Albertan. So Close I have, it is my second home. If I'm going to have a second home in Canada, it will be, uh, it will be Alberta. And and so it's probably the other province I know the most, except for my home province of Ontario. Well, look, I, I lived in Alberta for 11 or 12 years and and I'm a prairie boy, uh, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, then, then Alberta. Now we're, we're on Vancouver Island. But as I'm fond to say when I'm in Alberta, uh, I, I claim dual citizenship, Alberta and BC. And anybody who wants to argue with me about that is welcome to meet me out in the parking lot. So there we go. I like that. I like that. I'm going to use that too. That's good. You're welcome to. Well, look, um, I want to start with Alberta. Um, I, I was thinking maybe we might go, you know, sort of the broad strokes of what's going on in Canada. But Alberta is has been in the news now for months. Uh, Danielle Smith, the premier, is very combative when it comes to uh, Ottawa and the federal, the Trudeau government, and it just it grabs headlines over and over and over again. I mean, just you know, when they the federal government made uh, Environment Minister Stephen Gilbeau was in Dubai for COP twenty eight, and he made an announcement about. Um, methane emissions, they're going to raise the target and tighten up the regulations. This was a nothing story. The 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 act is, it, the regulation has been in place since 2018. The legislation uh, has been around for since 1999. The Alberta already has an equivalency agreement with Alberta, Lake Ottawa, literally for five years, they've been operating under this regulation, under federal legislation. And she comes out, you know, swinging and says that it's unconstitutional and constitutional and illegal. It's nonsense. It's utter nonsense. And yet it dominated the news for a day and headlines all over the place. And and this goes just goes on and on. And so I, I'm looking for your insights into what Albertans think about energy and, and climate change and the energy transition, but what other what other provinces, what other Canadians think about Alberta? Yeah, well, I think, yeah, lots to unpack there. I, I mean, I think just as a starting point, I think we know, um, you know, at least those who who support Danielle Smith, uh, who, who voted for the UCP in the spring uh, provincial election, I think they they most of them align with, I think, her take. And it's not to say that they all believe that climate is not something that should be a priority or that the energy transition is not eventually going to happen or needs to happen. But there is a deep uh, political culture uh, and view of this 
friction between Ottawa and and Alberta. And that's not new. It's been there uh, on every, even, even Rachel Notley had her fights with Ottawa. I remember her coming to Ottawa pleading with the federal government at the time to allow more oil on rail. Remember that, right? And and so right. this is not this is not a new thing. And you can go back to the Ralph Klein years and and so on and and find fights like this, often over energy policy. Um, I mean, hey, you can go back to the the seventies and eighties with the National Energy Program and the the first Trudeau um, hatred that that Alberta kind of developed with with in some ways, from their perspective, maybe maybe uh, understandable. But it it is this. I think you have to start with the understanding if you're not from Alberta, that the, the cultural, the norms, the social norms attached to the energy industry are so deep and so strong that 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 that's the starting point. And and as a result, um, everything else builds off of that. But I, I do think that most Albertans understand that climate is 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 climate change is happening, that that things are going to have to change. But at a moment when people are feeling so anxious about the economic future, it's it's very easy for a politician to to, to take advantage of that and and fight, uh, especially when you don't want to talk about things that are happening in your own province. I want to get your perspective on an argument that I heard a couple of years ago when I interviewed Janet Brown, who's a well-known pollster in Calgary. And she said that her data showed that over 50% of Albertans their identity is so tied up in oil and gas that literally they are oil and gas. And any attack, perceived attack on, on the oil and gas industry, they perceive it as attack on themselves. And that if, if that's true, then that would mean that they're vulnerable to a politician like Danielle Smith, who just keeps pushing their hot buttons all the time. Absolutely. A friend of mine, Jared Wesley, is a, a professor at the University of Alberta, a political scientist. I, I think in the past we've talked about some of his research, but I'll quickly just explain one study he did that I think sums up what you just explained. And he did focus groups across Alberta. And he went in with, with a you know diverse group of, of different types of Albertans from different backgrounds, different parts of the province. And he asked them one question, draw me an Albertan. And he saw over and over, regardless of where he was doing the focus groups or who was in those rooms, that three images were drawn, a roughneck, a rancher, and a farmer, right? Um, And so think about how climate change and energy policy and, and transition affects all three of those industries. All of them are major emitters. All of them are kind of in the crosshairs of, of, of the conversations and the public policy conversations we're having. And I don't think, perhaps except for Newfoundland and Labrador, you could go to any other province in the country and ask people who live there to draw someone who lives in their province and you'd get that same kind of reaction, that uniform view. And so, yeah, I believe it's it's at the core of so many, even, even new Albertans kind of adopt that, 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 that identity. And so... I think it's one reason why when we ask Albertans, do you think climate action is a priority and it's lower than the rest of the country? It's not so much that they're saying, I don't think it's real or I'm not worried about it. It's I don't think I can be Albertan and say that climate change is something we absolutely have to deal with. That's a fascinating insight, actually, that there's kind of a a cognitive dissonance in Alberta because there is the the acknowledged culture around conservatism. Everybody thinks that they're blue, uh, whether they are or not. 
uh, I tell this story all the time. The five years I spent in the oil and gas industry uh, and worked in a, with a Calgary company, and many of my colleagues would would proudly talk about how they were were rednecks, and and I was at that time working in in Texas, and I would say to them, "Dude, I've been to Texas. I've been to West Texas. You're a pink neck, maybe, but you are no redneck. I've seen rednecks, and you ain't it." And and but there's that sense of that collective that's how we identify and whether it's true or not but that may, seems to me that because i've seen your polling on on climate change and it it is lower than say you know bc or quebec uh, even ontario but it's not that much lower no there are there are let's be very clear there are many albertans who uh, particularly at a time when wildfires are making you know uh, it, uh, difficult to breathe or go outside in large numbers of days over the course of a summer. They they are well aware of of what's happening, but I do think there's resistance to the solutions because of its impact on their way of life, on their economy, and on 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 so much of of what it is uh, to be Albertan. But I want to say also, I see this reflected at a national level. And I think when I when I go in front of uh, audiences or clients and I say the the most divisive issue in Canada, the most polarizing issue politically is climate change, right? On the one hand, if you are somebody inclined to vote liberal, new Democrat, block, green, 70, 80% say climate change is a serious problem and almost half are putting it as their top issue or one of their top issues. If you are a conservative oriented voter, uh, barely 30% say it's a serious issue, still a lot, but still significantly lower. And only about 10% put it in their top three issues. And, and so as a result, not just an Alberta identity prevents people from uh, accepting or, or articulating or supporting politicians or parties that advocate for, for more aggressive climate uh, policy. But I think politically, is if you identify as a conservative-oriented voter, that also is basically saying, I can't be for climate action. Um, and, and I think you see that now nationally um, as well. And, and that's why, unlike any other issue, um, you, you've, you're rarely going to hear Pierre Polyev or even Doug Ford in Ontario or Daniel Smith in Alberta utter the words climate change. Uh, like Doug Ford went through an entire provincial election and didn't probably, unless he was asked a question about it, voluntarily talk about climate change um, and yet built huge battery plants. And that's not because he thought the energy transition was something important. It's because he wanted to create thousands of new jobs. One of the issues that's come up uh, in the last oh six months with that has political implications is the carbon tax. And this has been bubbling along for years. This is not new, but it seems to have, uh, and, and maybe it's uh, a Pierre Polyev and the and the Canadian Conservative Party that that has been successful at linking the prime minister justin trudeau with that and and then they've got the axe the tax campaign and he's been made a big deal out of it getting a lot of traction in the media and it seems to me uh as somebody who's been around you know watching uh, since the 70s watching politics that canadians don't elect governments they throw out governments you know they we just get tired of governments and it's time to give the other guy a, a chance and and you know the liberals were elected in in October of 2016. They've been around for a long time. There seems to be some fatigue. 
uh, with uh, with Justin Trudeau, even though he said he's going to stick on stick around for the next election. And how does that inter how does that play together uh, in terms of perceptions, Canadian perceptions of politics and energy and climate policy? Yeah, so let's take a step back and just understand that the, the current debate about the carbon tax in this current environment is very different than the debates we had over the last five, six years, right? We've been debating this uh, a lot. Liberals would say, look, we won the last two elections and both times, you know, Andrew Scheer in the first case actually ran on an axe the tax platform and we beat him. And then Aaron O'Toole ran on a version of a carbon price, but, you know, actually alienated a lot of his own base as a result, and we still beat him there. Um, and so there's some who would say, look, this issue settled. Uh, Canadians had twice an opportunity um, to judge on it, and they voted overwhelmingly for parties that supported the, the carbon tax. But that was in an environment where the cost of living and affordability was not the overwhelming number one issue. And I think you have to always keep in mind the context in which people are evaluating not just their political choices, and I think you're absolutely right. There's a deep fatigue with the Liberal government that makes um, a policy outcome of, of getting rid of the carbon tax almost a default, not because people necessarily want it, but because they want a change in government. And the change will likely bring uh, a policy of, of getting rid of it. Um, so in the context of what I'm calling a scarcity mindset, right, where housing is expensive, where the where our, our, our paychecks are going uh, aren't going as far as they used to be, and where healthcare scarcity is, is still an issue. Um, people are much more focused on their material needs than thinking about bigger issues and climate change is one of them, right? We've seen in our polling in the middle of August at the, at the sort of the worst summer that we have seen across the country in terms of extreme weather and wildfires, climate change rose up as a top issue, not to the top, but up to 30% of Canadians putting it in their top three. As of last week, it's down to 23, right? So it's out again of people's focus, but cost of living hasn't. The second thing that's changed in the past year, and, and I think has reignited the debate, is the imposition of the carbon tax in Atlanta, Canada. And as basically, you know, it's one thing for, and I, and I hate to say this, Albertans and, and those in Saskatchewan to be upset about the carbon tax. There are very few liberal voters there, very few liberal seats. But in a region like Atlantic Canada, where the carbon tax taking effect July 1st sparked immense anger and frustration, um, there you have a lot of liberal MPs. And so it became a real political problem that the government had to find a way to solve. I don't think they, they did the right thing by, by carving out uh, home heating fuel because they basically played into the conservative uh, conversation uh, and framing around the carbon tax as an affordability question as opposed to a climate solution. Um, and, and just one more point, um, and I think there's a lesson here for those who advocate for, 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 for climate action, for, for, for the energy transition, for making the case to the public, is I think where the liberals lost, the, the, at least lost some ground, is they accepted the premise that being green, that, being, uh, that, that shifting your energy use is more expensive. When in fact, we've done research with Clean Energy Canada that shows two thirds of Canadians, um, when given the choice, and we ask them, which household do you think will save more money? The household that uh, drives an EV and uses a heat pump for heating and air conditioning, or one that you know uses, um, say, natural gas and uh, a combustible engine? Two thirds say, I think it will be more affordable to 
be in the household with that EV and that heat pump. And that is the framing that needs to continue to happen in this context. And so the liberals, I think, played into the Conservative Party hands. And as a result, um, if, if you're an advocate for the carbon tax and, and climate action, I think we've taken a step back in this debate and the Conservatives have gained the upper hand. I want to uh, sketch out a hypothesis for you and then have you respond to it if you don't mind. So in uh, our energy media's journalism, um, we do about four or 500 expert interviews per year. And we very deliberately divide them up as close as we can to half in Canada about Canadian issues and a lot of them about Alberta issues because Alberta, frankly, is just the epicenter of the oil and gas industry and it's huge and it's noisy and, and, and you know, so it, des it deserves a lot of attention. But then the other half of our expert interviews are with uh, American and European experts and to a lesser extent in Asia. And the reason for that is because we see ourselves as as we want to keep our pulse on what's going on with the energy transition. Not so much climate, but the energy transition, the transformation of from fossil fuels to clean energy. And it's both the adoption of the new energy sources, you know, like clean electricity from wind and solar, but also the industry to make all that equipment has emerged as a major, major uh, issue. And we see that now, we see now China, as I often use the analogy, that China is now like the US coming out of World War II. It's the major industrial power around clean energy industry. And the Americans uh, woke up uh, during the, the COVID pandemic and said, oh, 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 we're in trouble. And this, because this now gives uh, China tremendous uh, control or influence over supply chains, which has all sorts of geopolitical implications. So the United States said, we're going to catch up to China. And then Europe went and looked at, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act and said, oh my God, we can't be left behind. And so now we've like sparked off this global and clean energy industry uh, arms race with China in the lead, the U.S. frantically trying to catch up and the EU trying to catch up to, to, to the U.S. And so when I talk to experts outside of Canada, I get a completely different view of what of the energy transition inside Canada, we're kind of sleepy, parochial, provincial, nasal gazing, uh, sorry, navel gazing, and and we just don't, we aren't plugged into the urgency of the economics around yeah. this, the the economic transformation that we're not taking advantage of, and that will in the very near future have a significant impact on our economy, on Alberta's economy in particular. And I'm wondering if your polling data can offer some insights into that hypothesis. Yeah, every time we've done research to explore exactly what you're you're, you're asking, you know, do Canadians first recognize um, or or see a link between the energy transition and economic growth and and long term economic growth and sustainability? Most do. Most most understand where we're going and see the opportunity. Um, which is why when we ask people, you know, do you support uh, the substantial subsidies that governments have given to to uh, automakers and battery uh, makers that we've seen invested in Ontario and BC and Quebec, the vast majority say, yeah, I'm willing to accept that. It's a big number. I'm maybe I'm comfortable with with the size of it. And I don't love, you know, giving corporations this this kind of money, but we've got to play in this game. We know that we don't have the 
the, the financial might of the of a China, of a Europe combined, or of certainly of the United States. And so we've got to do what we can. Um, and so I think there's a there's a broad acceptance of it. But I also think to some extent Canadians are very insular, right? Like we we don't pay that much attention to what's going on around the world. We're we're not engaged in in kind of you know, we're well aware of like global conflict and how that might be affecting us. But I think we're, we're a little bit naive almost um, and, and maybe a little complacent. Like we have it pretty good and that pretty good um, is becoming a problem because, and, and that's a productivity problem that we, we, we see and um, a competitiveness problem. So we almost need like almost a shock to wake people up to this reality. And because we're, we're fighting each other internally, Right. Um, I think that makes that makes that's a distraction to the real threat, which is, as you said, the rest of the world moving in one direction. And we're just we're moving slightly there, but we're not on the same page. And that that's creating uh, resistance. On a related topic, uh, your take on um, energy and climate reporting in Canada, because it frustrates me to no end as an energy journalist who's you know deep into these kinds of conversations and into the you know the reports from OPEC and IEA and Bloomberg NEF and what the trends are and all of that, and and then I you know I I'll see uh, something posted on on social media I'll see you know a headline on a you know maybe a TV news report, and 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 it's again it's that insular thing, it you know we. We don't have enough energy journalists to begin with, but the ones that are are always reporting on these fights between Ottawa and 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 in Alberta or Saskatchewan and El and Ottawa or you know different the bun fight we have internally. I agree, and in part it's it's enabled uh, by our captured or biased or oblivious uh, media. Uh, your thoughts. Yeah, no, I think there's something there. I think I think it's it's easy for us to get distracted because uh, first, it's easier to report on those fights than maybe it is to, as as you well know, Markham, as somebody who does this every day for a living. Um, how sometimes more it's complicated, uh, you know, energy <laughs> policy and and the energy yeah. sector and and all these things are are not easy, and you you have to have expertise to be able to do that uh, well and to sort of pick through what's real and what's not. But I do think you know. Uh, Federalism is is complicated. Federalism is hard. I mean, the United States is is a federation, but different in the sense that the US, the federal government has much more power than our federal government has on on a lot of these issues, and so can drive the agenda and and has that that spending power that we that our federal government has, but not to the same extent. Um, and and I think you see you see something similar in, in in Germany, which has had trouble kind of you know making some of the same kind of gains and, and weaning itself off of Russian oil and uh, gas and all those kinds of things. Um, but I, but I also think that, you know, in the Canadian context, um, I think there was a moment again, don't, don't underestimate the power that that political capital plays in bringing people along. Right. I'm as somebody who measures public opinion every day. I am not oblivious to the fact that a lot of it is, is actually constructed by the conversations that are happening and by the leadership that we see. And, you know, I think, I think, I think, I think it needs to be there. On the other hand, I just want to say one other thing. I think sometimes those who advocate for the energy transition, environmental organizations, sometimes get too caught up in the moral arguments and the 
as opposed to seeing, for example, a politician like Doug Ford, who, as I mentioned earlier, probably doesn't wake up every morning, any morning and says, I've got to, what am I going to do today to save this planet? But what he does think about is how am I going to create a lot of jobs for people who live in this province? I want that recognition. And so Doug Ford's a perfect example of how you can have a conversation about energy transition, even if it's not about that, right? Because he wants to, he wants, I believe, to um, get the kudos for bringing thousands of new jobs to Southwestern Ontario. Um, he's not doing it because it's important to the energy transition or to, uh, you know, dealing with the climate crisis. He's doing it because he wants to create a lot of jobs. And so sometimes we, I think, need to learn some lessons there and figure out how do you get to the outcome you want, even if it's not for the right, even if it's not for the reasons you want it to be. I have a little insight on that, <clears throat> on your point. Um, in Alberta, particularly over the last couple of months, I have been out doing in-person presentations to various groups like the professional biologists of Alberta and, and, uh, you know, folks down in Lethbridge and, and so on uh, about the energy transition. My presentation has three parts. First of all is how does the energy transition work? And this comes out of, you know, I bore my, my poor listeners with my story about how 40 years ago when I was doing my media, my graduate research, I had, you know, was, it was about the last energy transition. So I had all this wonderful theory, but, but really I, I, I you know, I, I explain how the transition works from one set of techno energy technologies to another and, and how that, that process, what the, the dynamics of it is. Then we talk about the argument for a short tra energy transition versus the argument for a, a long energy transition or a, a slow versus fast is maybe a better way to, to describe it. And I fall into the fast camp. Uh, and then what are the implications of that for Alberta? And it could be BC, it could be, it doesn't matter. It, but what are the implications? And invariably in Alberta, people go, you know, oh, you think that, you know, we're going to be, uh, our energy industries are going to be squeezed and we're going to lose a lot of more, lot more jobs than we've already lost in the last decade. And that's going to lead to business losses. And then we might not have enough revenue and, you know, from royalties and stuff. And that gets their attention right there, boy, now they're focused. And then, they, then they're starting to talk about, okay, what can we do about that? And I think you're absolutely right. You know, the, I love the folks at Clean Energy Canada, but, you know, they and others kind of fall into that trap that you talked about, talking about it as a moral imperative to reduce emissions and save the planet from burning up. Whereas I think the more effective argument is to focus on the risk to our economic prospects and the opportunities that the energy transition presents to for, to better our economic process. That well, gets well, attention. Let me just, yeah, well, I was going to defend Clean Energy Canada, and I don't think you meant to disparage, because I think- I, I really don't. I work with them, and I think they've recognized, not just recently, but over time, that that moral argument alone doesn't move everybody, and that you actually have to expand the framing to bring in economic opportunities, but also the affordability question. Like, it was, uh, you know- um, Trevor Mellinson, who's the director of, of communications, who called me up and said, we want to do some focus groups. We want to better understand the link in people's minds between energy transition, clean energy and, and affordability. But that, that point is still important, right? That you're, that you're saying is that people's resistance, particularly in Alberta, particularly in areas where the energy sector is so fundamental 
to their economic livelihoods and their standard of living, that the moment you say we've got to move fast and yeah, it's going to be disruptive and whoa, that, you know, too bad. Well, that, why would you accept that? I mean, I think it's human nature to be resistant to it, even when you know there's an existential threat on the other end that this planet can't deal with um, us doing this for much longer. And I think, I think both sides of this debate have, have kind of dug in. And instead, what I know from public opinion is most people, including Albertans, are in the middle, right? And in a way, they want their cake and they want to eat it too, which is a problem because you can't do that on, on this issue. But on the other hand, I think you can look at other parts of the world. Think of Norway. Think of, um, I think, many European countries, Scotland as an example, where they have a significant energy industry, but have been able to leverage that and move their own country and encourage others to, to transition away, right? And I do think, like, this is my personal opinion, and, and I, it may contest your go fast uh, preference, but I think if we're going to bring the public along, if we're going to find some consensus, I think we have to also recognize that, um, that, that, that if, we, if we signal consistently that the oil and gas sector has to disappear in a very short period of time, um, even if it will, and even if it's going to, you're not going to get the public buy-in that you need. And you're going to create the space for politicians, whether it be Daniel Smith, whether it be Pierre Polyev, to get elected despite not having any serious uh, climate plan. Uh, first of all, uh, Mia Culpa, uh, the Canadian Clean Energy Canada folks, love them, interview them all the time. It was bad choice on my part to use them as an example to illustrate your the argument you had been making. So, uh, Trevor, don't send me an angry email. <laughs> but uh, I want to respond to that because I actually have a, a I actually do have a response. Uh, the Alberta Innovates uh, is has been doing an uh, research since 2016 on the bitumen beyond combustion program, where you take bitumen and you can turn it into, into materials. And when I was at the World Petroleum Congress in uh, Calgary in, in September, I went to a technical session that was uh, moderated by uh, Dr. Ibrahim uh, Abba, who's the VP of Technology for Saudi Aramco. It was about, and he said, and there were, and there was an Alberta Innovate scientist on the on the panel, uh, and but Dr. Abba said. He said, yes, we have an energy transition, but we are also in the midst of a materials transition. And we are learning to how to make more advanced materials from hydrocarbons. That's the future. And so what I have argued for now for quite a while is that what we should be, what Alberta should be doing is, is leveraging Alberta Innovate's IP and their research, start building an advanced materials industry now that uses hydrocarbons as, as feedstock, so that because I mean this takes 10, 20 years. You don't do this overnight. So you build up that industry, you build up the domestic demand for your hydrocarbons so that as global uh, forces, uh, as demand destruction happens at the global level, you can compensate. You can you can you can build your domestic market, your domestic demand, for those hydrocarbons. And if you really got lucky and you did it really smartly, you might be able to retain most of those extraction jobs while building tens of thousands or creating tens of thousands of other jobs in your now new advanced materials industry. That gets really, really positive feedback from Alberta audience. They get, they intuitively get that, that it's possible and that it, this is maybe a strategy out of the dilemma that you just described. 
I think it's, I, I'm not as much into this as you are. I'd not heard of that before. And I think that makes a lot of sense, right? As you're basically signaling to people, we're not like, I think for a lot of people in Alberta, when you hear energy transition, uh, you no longer hear just transition because that that terminology has been been turfed. So energy transition in their minds is turning it off. Where what I think you're arguing here is 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 shifting it, uh, changing what we're using this resource for, and the opportunity to be the a world leader in in that that process. And I think I think you 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 know again if this is my now pollster hat off, citizen hat on. If we had really serious leaders, right, who didn't play politics with this, I think we could get there. But um, and that's that's I think our our my my glass half full hope is that we will get to a point where this problem becomes so obvious and politically damaging without action that then you have no choice but to but to look for solutions like that. The problem is when I look at public opinion on climate and and that is the you know, primary initiator for action around the uh, energy transition, that the public is still not fully seized with the crisis we're actually in. And in the short term, as I, as I talked about earlier, the material needs that people feel they can't meet today, the scarcity that, that the current economic situation has created, I think has, has, has pushed this a, a little bit to the side. Now, that doesn't mean very quickly, if we have a, hopefully not, but another terrible summer, um, that it won't be back on the agenda. And and I think that's that's the political risk that the Danielle Smiths and the Pierre Paulias are playing with is that there is a sleeping, there is a sleeping tiger, whatever, whatever analogy you want to use. And the public is well aware of it. They just haven't, it hasn't been salient yet to the point where it's going to actually drive votes. And I don't think we can assume it won't wake up again and and that's going to be a scary thing for them i, I want to ask a related question and we'll finish off our conversation uh but uh you mentioned ralph klein earlier and ralph klein had a saying that i actually think makes a lot of sense and he said politicians don't lead they find a parade and they get out in front of it and is maybe that part of the problem here is that there is not a parade around recognizing that the energy transition is fundamentally challenging uh, uh, threatening some of our our biggest industries and that we need to change and so there's no parade around it so the politicians can't get out in front of it yeah there's there's i don't think there's a, a, a there's not a sufficient sense of urgency on on a, you know you talked about the perspective from outside canada and how it's so different here or even if you talk to economists who are ringing the alarm bells around productivity and if you ask Canadians about it, they don't even know what we're talking about. And there hasn't been enough priming and, 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 and conversation to get them into a place where they say, yeah, this is going to seriously affect our standard of living. Our growth is going to be at the very bottom of the OECD because we're, we're falling behind on productivity. And, and that's related to the energy transition and, and how, we, how we operate our economy. So I think you're right. There is no parade right now um, in which enough people are marching. Um, but I, but again, I, I, I think to think it won't form is, is, is delusional in a way. And, and when it does, there will be an enterprising uh, politician who's going to take it and that's going to become a powerful political force. So I don't know if it's going to happen in the next year, next two years, but at some point, um, 
when people learn that they're not going to be able to get insurance on their home or that, you know, they're not going to be able to, you know, spend much time outside or, you know, global insecurity is only going to rise. This, this, this era of permacrisis is going to be permanent, permanent permacrisis. Um, I think people are going to start to, to expect more. And I use, and I'll just end with this because I think we're experiencing the consequences, the political consequences of a similar crisis that we knew was going to happen five, 10 years ago, but no one really dealt with it. And that's the housing crisis. The political implications of the housing crisis are so apparent um, that had people, had governments and leaders seen that parade forming and, and got in front of it and did something about it, we wouldn't be in the, in the problem we are now. And, and I think, you know, climate is another perfect example where we're well past it developing into a crisis. It, it is one, but the parade's still forming. Well, David, when I asked you on here, I, I was hoping that we would have a, you know, insightful and interesting conversation and you've delivered in spades. So thank oh, you very thank much for this. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll head into 2024, uh, keeping an eye on some of the trends that you've identified. And we'll have you back next year uh, to talk about this again. Thank you very much for this. Thanks, Markham. Take care.